So we were we were back in the back having a little devotional ourselves. So, but it's so good to see you all again I mean, during this time, and um, we need to have church, and we, and we need to focus on what we're doing here, which is the worship of God. So I, I don't have any announcements. Um, so let's uh, let's hear the call to worship. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifest. So let us rise and worship God in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Our Father, we look forward to the day when all the nations will know You as Savior and Lord, that all people will see that You are gracious and full of compassion, abounding in mercy. And as we worship You this morning, we pray that You will be pleased to meet with us. Remove our sins from us, we pray, and and write Your law upon our hearts. And teach us to pray as You taught Your disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies. The very scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. But your foot may crush them in blood. And the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations. The Lord from the mountains is There is little Benjamin, their leader. The princes of Judah, their company. The princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. For you, beasts of the beasts, the herd of bulls with the cows of the people, till everyone submits himself with the pieces of silver. Scatter the people who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides on the heavens of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His, his excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. He will hear their cry and save them.
Let us kneel and humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Most holy and merciful Father, we acknowledge and confess before you our sinful nature, prone to evil and slothful and good, and all our shortcomings and offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, and in forgetting your love. O oh Lord, have mercy on us, who are ashamed and sorry for all wherein we have displeased you. Teach us to hate our errors, cleanse us from our secret faults, and forgive our sins for the sake of your dear Son. O oh, most holy and loving Father, Send your purifying grace into our hearts, that we may henceforth live in your light and walk in your ways, according to the commandments of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Arise. Hear the good news. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven and your lives are rescued in our Lord Jesus Christ and His victory over the grave. Believe this and rejoice. Is not 
complete communion of the blood of Christ? Is it, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we come uh, humbly before You, thanking You, hearts full of gratefulness for Your mercy and grace. For we see that You rule and reign over all things, and yet You also forgive us for our sins, and You have done everything that needs to be done for us to be forgiven by You. And now we have peace with You, and we come today to worship You and to thank You for Your many blessings, for the grace that You have lavished on us. Father, we thank You for this church. We thank You for this day, one in seven, that we come and we can rest in You. Um, and we thank You that we can bring our needs and concerns to You and that You hear our prayer and You know us by name and You take care of us and You work in our lives. Father, we think of those in our congregation uh, who are ill. We, we ill and recovering from surgery. We think of Carolyn Quarles and her uh, knee and ankle pain and the surgeries that she had. Prepare her body for another surgery. And I pray that you will heal her. Be with Beth Samsel and her ongoing respiratory struggles. And ask, Lord, that this COVID pandemic will pass on us so that she can once again come and join with us and worship. Father, we, we thank you for um, uh, the privilege that we have of worshiping and I ask that you'll be with our church as we go through this time um, as we are, um, one, dealing with the pandemic, but two, dealing with being without a pastor. And I pray that you will call that man to us. Help us to be patient during this time and to be um, focused on your will for us. And I pray that you will bring us the right leader, the right pastor to bring the word to us and to lead us and shepherd us. Um, and we thank you for this time. Help us to learn uh, during this time. Uh, what your purpose is for us and to learn that we need to trust in you. Father, we thank you for uh, uh, the, the blessing of children and, and uh, we thank you for uh, young Everly born to Sandy and Hayden and uh, Ada born to Corley and Bowen and I pray that you will um, keep those children close to you, that you will even now draw their hearts to you that they will love you and serve you. We pray for uh, William and, and Bailey and, and uh, the young child that they uh, are about to bring into this world. Be with Bailey as she goes through this time of pregnancy and comfort her and help her and encourage her. Um, and be with William as he supports her. And again, we ask that even now you will work in the heart of that young one to love you all the days of its life. 
Father, we, we pray for our nation during this time, for, um, for revival and for peace. And uh, the, um, we, we see your hand moving and we do not know uh, where you would have things. But we do ask and pray that your name will be glorified through this season and through our election. And that those who you choose to put in uh, governance over us, I pray that you will guide their hearts and their hands. And that uh, your law and your covenant and your grace will be known throughout this nation. We stand and watch and look for your moving in this historic time. Father, now as we go to worship, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the preaching of your word. And I ask that you will guide our hearts now. Help us to focus on what you would have us learn. And uh, we pray that all that we do here today will be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to be back with you. I think the last time I was here was just prior to COVID, and it seems like it was about 10 years ago. Um, it seems to be a season which uh, many of us are, are praying that the Lord would graciously have removed from us. Uh, it's been uh, taxing in many respects. But I do bring you greetings this morning from uh, First Praise Church once again. I know that as the brothers and sisters gather there, as we gather here, it's a great reminder from Scripture that we are one body. And so we may be worshiping in different places, that we do serve and worship the one great King and Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ Himself. So, this morning I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, as we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, uh, reading from verses 14 through to verses 35. John chapter 6, verses 14 through 35. While you're turning there, uh, let me tell you the story of uh, a lady by the name of Lillian Guild. Uh, Lillian Gild and her husband were traveling down the highway uh, one uh, Saturday afternoon and they came across a car, a Cadillac, that was parked on the side of the road with its hood up. And so they thought, well, they would pull over and see if there was any way in which they could help the driver. So they pulled over and immediately and somewhat sheepishly, the driver came across them and said, look, uh, I was actually late for a business meeting and so uh, I, I, I neglected to refill my car with gas and hence I find myself in this predicament. Well, it just happened by chance that um, the guilds had an extra gallon of gas in their trunk, and uh, they put it into the vehicle, but they explained, look, this is going to be enough to get you to the gas station without, you know, a couple of miles down the road. You will need to refill in order to get to your business meeting in the city. And he thanked them profusely, and off he sped. Well, as you may have guessed, uh, the guilds were traveling down the highway a little bit further, and guess what? They came across the same Cadillac at the side of the road with the hood up. And so they thought, well, maybe there's something else wrong. Maybe we can pull over and see if we can assist once again. And again, the driver came across and said, you know what? I was so late for my business meeting, I actually decided to hope and pray that the, the gallon of gas you gave me would be sufficient to get me to the meeting. Um, but of course, he finds himself in a similar predicament. Well, you know, in some ways, we, we listen to stories like that, and I'm sure it's never happened to anyone in here. Um, just to kind of clear it, uh, on my first date with my now wife, we ran out of gas on the highway, and so this is very close to home. Not once, uh, let me say not twice, just once we ran out of gas. 
Um, but it almost seems foolish and illogical that you would not take the advice to refill the gas tank in order to get to one's destination. And um, part of the reason for using this analogy is that I wonder how many of us as Christians sometimes don't approach our lives as believers in a similar fashion. We can be so busy pressing on to the next meeting, going to the next part of the agenda, even doing Christian work. In other words, we live in a culture which is go, 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 but in actual fact we forget or we neglect to pause and to refuel. We're so busy running on empty and we don't even realize it until calamity strikes. And it's passages like the one that's before us that I honestly do believe that God has given to us as a reminder to us as believers, as His children, that we need daily manner. That Christ alone is the one who is sufficient. He alone is the one that truly satisfies. But we have the responsibility to come to Him and to sit at His feet, to sit under the Word, to read and to pray, to fellowship with God, so to speak, to commune with Him so that we can be prepared for whatever it is that the next day or two has in store for us. God graciously does use His Word to prepare us and to nourish us and to set us, send, send us forward. Now, and of course, we, we don't come out of obligation to the Word. But it, it ought to be that we come because we desire to come to the One who is life, knowing that He gives life and He continues to sustain life. And that's part of what we're going to look at and tease out this morning. So let's read uh, John chapter 6, and we're going to be reading from verses 14 through 35, and then we'll, we'll come to the Lord in prayer. Just prior to verse 14, uh, Jesus has just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And then we pick up in verses 14, where he says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum, or to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But they said to them, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had got away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said, He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Amen. Praise God for his word. It's Balakitshan. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of calling us together this morning to be gathered together in this place, uh, within this community, to sing your praise, to come before you in prayer, but most importantly to sit under the worship, the, the reading and the preaching and the worship of the Word. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would take your Word and you would plant it deep within each and every one of us here. Lord, use it to stir our consciences, use it to draw us closer to you as the living God. And Father, most importantly, may you be the one that receives the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Right, now prior to verse 14 of our passage, uh, as I mentioned, Jesus has performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's, it's pretty interesting because this is the only miracle of Jesus Christ that is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. And commentators have obviously wondered uh, why it is the only one. But it does seem to indicate that this miracle plays a central and a pivotal part in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's widely recognized that John 6, the passage that we've been reading, is a transitional chapter in the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ himself. At the beginning of the chapter, he's surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have just been uh, the witnesses of the feeding of the 5,000. And they want to continue to, to hear more and to see more of these miracles. But by the end of the chapter, Jesus Christ is sitting alone with his 12 original disciples. And in verses 67, and you can go and read the entire chapter when you go home later after, after church. But in verses 67, he even says to his own disciples, he says, Do you want to go away as well? It's almost as if there's an expectation that in light of what he has said, in light of what he has done... He expects everyone to abandon him. But just after that, in verses 68 and 69, it's Peter who has those, those words that have become somewhat of a rallying cry for believers down through the ages, where Peter responds to Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a profound profession of faith in light of the events that have just unfolded and transpired. And so the question that we need to be asking is, what exactly did Jesus do? What exactly did Jesus say that caused so much offense to drive thousands and thousands of people away, leaving him with just his original 12 disciples? And as we would later to come, come to know, is that not even the 12 disciples that were there to fully embrace actually what he was teaching and had been demonstrated in his life, even at this point. Judas being one of the examples. 
Now, just before we continue, before we get into the text, there's a very real temptation when we read passages like this for us to think to ourselves that we would never do what they did when they were in the presence of Jesus. But I do think that when you read this passage and you begin to come to grips with what Jesus is calling His disciples, not just those who were present, but basically disciples throughout the ages, when we understand what He's calling the disciples to, the question that needs to be asked, how many of us would actually still remain with Him and in His presence? Jesus was asking them to do something that was not part and could not be done in their own strength. It was setting aside, just as we actually sang this morning, it was setting aside everything and every connection to the ways of this world to follow Him and to follow Him by faith. When we grasp what Jesus is calling His disciples to, the question is, would you be there sitting around Him that day? Or would we have left with the crowds, following the way of the cultural majority, which speaks pretty loudly at times? We've seen that in our day and age. Would we be part of the cultural majority? What exactly does Jesus mean when He says in the middle of the text that we read, why are you pursuing bread that does not last? But rather you're to set your eyes and your heart on the bread that leads to life. And that's what we're going to tease out as we continue this morning. So there's three things that I want us to, to look at from the text. The first one is this. There are things, and we need to recognize that there are things that result in Jesus withdrawing His presence. There are things that result in Jesus withdrawing His presence. Secondly, I want us to look at the fact that there are things, other things, that Jesus responds to and He restores His presence. And then thirdly, echoing the prophet Isaiah 55, uh, speaking of come and eat and drink without price or without money. I want us to see how the text actually calls us to stop pursuing perishing bread. Stop pursuing perishing bread. But to come and to eat of the true bread, which lasts for eternity, that brings joy and actually does bring true meaning in life. So that's more or less the trajectory that we're going to go on this morning. Firstly... I want you to notice how Jesus withdraws His presence. And we see this particularly in verses 14 and verses 15 of the passage. When you read Matthew and Mark's account of the storm narrative, um, they explicitly detail how Jesus sort of gives his, his, his disciples a command to get into the boat that was at the shore and to go across to the other side. And He then goes on to dismiss the crowds before ascending and walking up the mountain in order to spend some time alone with His Father in heaven, some time in prayer. Now, the question that obviously arises here is, what's going on? Uh, what did he, why did He do this? Why is He dismissing everyone and wanting to be isolated and alone with His Father? Well, very simply, the people wanted, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that He had done, remember the feeding of the 5,000, they said to Him, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What's interesting is you put the four Gospels together 
it becomes very clear that the crowd that was there that day understood <coughs> Jesus to be the prophet that was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. These Israelites, these Jews who were well versed in the Old Testament, understood that they would continuously be looking out every new generation for the one who is like Moses. Moses is the one that actually said to them, continuously be looking out for the one who is the final word, the final prophet. And there's a sense in which, with Jesus' statements and Jesus' actions, they understood that this is the one that they've been waiting for. At the same time, they were also to be looking out for the one who is Messiah, who would rule and who would reign and who would restore David's throne. The whole of the Old Covenant was actually uh, giving them insight as to the fact that they ought to be looking for this prophet and for this king. Here he is, right in their midst. And the crowds recognized him. They saw him for who he was. This is the one that they have been waiting for. In fact, Jesus actually spoke about this in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, where we at the well, and he actually says to her that he is the Messiah. So they were not wrong. So the question that now arises is, why is it that Jesus would reject the position of prophet and king that they wanted to give to him? Why did he reject it? Well, the people wanted Jesus on their own terms. That's, just, that's simply and essentially what's going on here. They wanted Jesus on, his, on their own terms. He was to be their religious leader. And he was to be their political spokesman. But in a way that required absolutely no sacrifice. And certainly not the role of being a priest. They wanted the prophet. They wanted him as king. But not the priest and certainly not the suffering servant which ultimately is the reason that he came. They wanted him as God's leader. They were searching after God's leader, but not God's lamb. They wanted order and structure according to the world's systems, the world's ways, but not God's ordained means, which was through the cross. They want nothing to do with his sacrifice, and they want nothing to do with the sacrifice that would have needed to be the program or the, the path that would be followed by those who would associate with Jesus Christ as a disciple or as a follower. In fact, towards the end of the chapter, chapter 6 of, of John's Gospel, Jesus actually outlines and he goes into details the cost that would be involved in order for him to become the priest, the prophet, and the king. And then ultimately that his cost of laying down his life would be the example that would need to be followed by those who would call themselves followers of the Messiah as well. Ultimately, it was this one phrase that Jesus says that drove the crowds away, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And of course, part of that was speaking about his own sacrifice. It was, it was also speaking about the fact that there would come a time after the cross where we would partake of the Lord's Supper as God's people, identifying ourselves with the cost that was involved in the purchase of our salvation. And ultimately, it's also a foreshadowing of that which is the great marriage feast of the Lamb. So there was multiple pictures that were involved in what Jesus was actually unfolding for them. But it was that statement that drove the crowds away in John chapter 6. Let me say this, because in some sense, I don't think much has changed. And the reason I say that is that if we are left to ourselves, we live in a world where we 
where people in this world are looking for a Messiah figure. They want a king. They want a prophet. They, they want someone who is a king who will usher in redemption and who will usher in peace now. Isn't that part of the, the narrative that we're hearing around us? We want this leader because this leader will be the one who will bring in peace. Who will bring stability and so much more. And so we're looking for a king who will usher in redemption and peace now. Who, who will lead us into a kingdom assuring us that if we just submit to their requests, we will have our best bread now. And, of course, Jesus turns around and says, but it's the bread that does not last. It's the bread that does not last. Your focus is on the wrong, the wrong issue, the wrong, the wrong dynamic. And I think that if we were in Jesus' day or if he was in our day, we would turn around and say to him, come on, Jesus, don't just do it once, the provision of, of bread, like you did yesterday in the feeding of the 5,000. Do it again. Moses did it every single day for years upon years upon years. Surely you can do it again to show us so that we may believe. Isn't it interesting that God can do things in our lives, the most important, the most critical being, taking us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and yet we're still looking for new signs and new wonders. And you see, Jesus turns to them, he says, you have not understood the sign. The sign was not about the feeding of your stomach, giving you something to eat, but it was pointing you forward to the reality of who I am. It's the bread that does not last. I alone am the true manna that has been sent from heaven. Believer in Jesus, the proof of a life that is poured out to Christ is found in following in the way of the cross. It is the cross that Jesus, or it is through the cross that Jesus rules and he reigns in the hearts of his people. Therefore, he's king, but it's through the cross. It is through the cross that we recognize the prophetic voice of the shepherd. It's the Spirit of God that dwells in us that opens up and illumines the scriptures so that we recognize the voice of God. But it is through the cross, him being the suffering servant, him being the lamb, ultimately to be that priest on our behalf in the courtroom of heaven, that ultimately allows him then also to be the king and profit to us as his children. It is through the cross that we enter the narrow way. And this is a message that we're all pretty familiar with, but I think it's a message that we need to be reminded of. It's a narrow way, and it's on that narrow way where we, we then grow in our love for justice and mercy. It's on that narrow way where we actually desire to humbly walk before our God. We desire to grow in our love for God and for our neighbor. You see, when you do it without coming to the cross, we start to see what is happening all around us. But when you come to the cross, when Christ has changed our hearts and changed our understanding and changed our gaze, it takes on a totally different dynamic in the way that our lives are lived out. And what we see in our passage is that when Jesus encounters people who want him as king and who want him as prophet without the cross, he says, please just depart from me. He withdraws his presence. He sends them away from him. 
Previously, just the day before, he, had, he looked upon them with compassion and he fed them. And now he dismisses them. But when he realized that all that they wanted was him on their terms, there was no place for that. And I think that there's a reminder for us in that. Uh, have we constructed a Messiah according to our own minds? Or are we going back to the Word to understand who Jesus says He is and we take Him at that, at that value? On the narrow road, we march to the beat of a different drum, not simply to the latest pipe piper that is propagated through social media or whatever other avenue the world has gone. We gaze upon the One who is priest, who is prophet, and who is king, and we find that we are satisfied in Him and in Him alone. And that simply brings me to the second point, and that is to consider the fact that in verses 16 through 21, it speaks quite clearly about the fact that Jesus comes to His own. Jesus comes to His own. Uh, one of the details that is pretty fascinating in the Joanne narrative of the storm um, account is that the disciples do not appear to be afraid of the storm. In some of the other narratives of Mark and Matthew, they do appear to be afraid of the storm, but not here. Yes, the sea is choppy, but remember, these are seasoned sailors. They are fishermen. This is part of their work. They've seen these occurrences before. What seems to be more perturbing to them in the Joannine narrative is the fact that they feel as if Jesus has abandoned them. He's left them alone. Now, here they are out in the storm. They're pulling on the oars, they're pulling on the sails, they're trying to make it through. As Mark's account details, it is Jesus who is watching them from the mountain. Remember, he's gone up the mountain to go and spend some time in prayer. He has not taken his eyes off of them as they have set sail to go across to the other side. What a beautiful reminder. Brothers and sisters, whatever the storm that you're going through, whatever situation of life that you're going through, Jesus has not taken His eyes off of you. And the Father Himself has you firmly within His grip. That's meant to be a tremendous encouragement and a reminder of the love and the mercy and the grace of God towards us. And so here we have Jesus watching them from the mountain. He's the one that sees the danger that is coming as the, the swells become larger. And he has compassion upon them, and he goes out to go and meet them in the middle of the water. And they're more terrified by his presence than they are than they are with the storm. Friends, how real is Jesus to you? One commentator that I was reading saying, "Has Jesus ever frightened you? If not, he asks this question: Have we truly met the living Messiah?" I don't know about you, but when I, when I read that for myself, it, it kind of got my conscience, it got me thinking. And what he was doing was, he was actually picking up on the narrative of Luke chapter 5, where Peter meets Jesus Christ for the first time, and he says, depart from me, for I am a wicked man. You see, when we meet and when we encounter the living Messiah, when we encounter Jesus for who he is, we're undone. That's the narrative of most of the people in the Old and the New Testaments. You think of Abraham, Moses, Isaiah. You think of Ezekiel. When you meet the Holy One of Israel, you're then forced to be made aware of your own depravity, your own sin. And it's meant to undo you. 
So you come to the end of yourself and you throw yourself at the mercy and grace of the one who has revealed himself in Scripture. And yet, notice as well as we see in this text, Jesus always says to those who cry out to him, Fear not, it is I. I am here, I love you, I am with you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. I have you in the very palm of my hand. You are my brother, and from the Father's perspective, you are my child. Those are words that we need to be reminded of. We need to hear continuously. And and not just in every season of life, but I think most importantly, with all that's happened and transpired in the last five months. I I don't know how it's affected you, but for most people, it's been a roller coaster. Emotionally, mentally, physically, perhaps, even spiritually. As you've just gotten through and clung to Christ for one day at a time. COVID viruses. Change and uncertainty all around. Peaceful protests that turn to riots. We've seen stealing. There's been destruction. Supreme Court decisions that could carry huge implications, not just for society, but for the church in the years to come. There's a massive clash of worldviews that's happening right before us. The one part of the worldview is this is that we're living in a society which wants a king and is looking for a prophet but has rejected the lamb. And yet there's the Christian worldview whereby we embrace God as king and as prophet and we embrace Jesus Christ as the lamb. And we know that he is with us and he is for us. But it means that there's a cost involved in the way that we live out our lives and our orientation and our gaze. We were just talking about this before the service. As Reformed Christians, who are part of that Reformed community at least, we believe and we embrace and we love the fact that God is sovereignly in control of every single detail. Even these last few months where Christians have been thrust out into the waves, so to speak. But there's a sense in which when he thrusts us out into the waves, he is calling his people to take your turmoil, take your fears, take your tears, take your concerns to him and pour it out before his throne of grace. Don't try and deal with this in your own own strength and your own sin. We have to go to our Savior, to our Heavenly Father, for sustenance and for an infilling, so to speak, and for a feeding. Uh, just this morning, in that pastoral prayer, there's a prayer for revival. If you're at a church that is praying for revival, as many churches across the United States are, they're praying that God would visit the United States afresh, pouring out His Spirit, bringing people to a place where they're brought to the end of themselves. Well, we need to understand that God begins with that in the church. He refines the church first, so that the church becomes the beacon of light and hope to a watching world, that the light pierces the darkness. And ultimately, that's what God will use as the agency to bring about what we're praying for, and that is revival. And so when these things happen, when we're thrust out into the waves, understand that God is at work, but we are to flee to Him so that He equips us to be a people who will be the light. Stop kicking against what God is doing is what I'm trying to say as well. But embrace what he's doing. 
in His strength. Because ultimately, the glory and the honor and the praise is His. And He's doing things in ways that we cannot comprehend at this moment in time. We will only see it in maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now. And for that, we're living a life of faith. It's a journey of faith. Trusting in Him and looking forward to that great day. And so in the midst of the storm, His eye is upon you. His eye is upon us. He comes to us. He hears us. And He also speaks peace. One of the things, and I don't have much time to go into the details here, but the one detail that strikes me when I read verses 21 is that they were fearful. They were in the middle of the sea. As soon as Jesus steps into the boat, they were at the other side. Isn't that the testimony of how God actually is at work in our own lives? When there is chaos that ensues, and yet we come to that place where we pour out and we lay down our lives before Him, it's almost as if the sea seems to dissipate and we arrive and we see just how His fingerprints have been leading us all along. How He's marked our steps. So He speaks peace and He brings peace. And that brings us thirdly, just to, to notice very quickly how Jesus confronts them in this passage the crowds that have come across. And at the same time as he confronts them, he reveals himself. We see this from verses 22 through 35. Notice that Jesus, he begins to speak about the bread. And the way he does that is virtually the same as when he was speaking to them the day before in the feeding of the 5,000. In this occasion, the crowds arrive from the other side. And immediately they turn to Jesus and say, where did you come from? You see, they had recognized that there was only one boat there the day before, and Jesus had told the disciples to get in and to go across to the other side, and then he dismissed them before going up the mountain. And so it's a legitimate question. One commentator, I think, with a bit of a, probably a grin on his face, he, he makes this comment, he says, imagine if Jesus had turned to them and said, oh, I just walked across the water. How that would have just shattered their worldview even at that point. But notice that he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't tell them how he got across. But in actual fact, he aims at their hearts. And he goes and he says, essentially, you're only here for more bread, aren't you? You missed the sign. You misunderstood everything that yesterday was about. You're just simply here for another meal. So let's ask the question, what is this bread that he's speaking about? This bread that perishes. Friends, the bread that perishes, that is spoken about in this text and elsewhere in Scripture is any time we seek satisfaction without desiring and without enjoying intimate communion with Almighty God. It is any time we seek satisfaction without desiring, without enjoying intimate communion with Almighty God. Two things come to mind. It's those occasions when we stop short of intimate communion with God because we're busy picking up the crumbs of His kindness and His goodness. And so we stop and we enjoy the crumbs from His hand, but we don't enjoy them. Or it might be the occasion where we actually think that there's something more to Jesus. There's got to be something that's more fulfilling than Jesus. And so we move beyond Jesus Christ to something. It's Jesus plus, and you can list whatever you'd like to add there. Friends, any time we fall short or beyond or go beyond intimate communion with God, with Jesus, it cannot satisfy that's the bread that does not last. It's a momentary thing. You remember Jesus' statement elsewhere in the Gospels where he says, seek first his kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. 
You know, there's a sense in which the ways in which we seek God's face, not because we want Him or because we long for intimacy with Him, but because we are after what He gives, that is the bread that does not satisfy. And yet, that bread, in other words, the necessities of life, even the luxuries and the comforts that we have in this life, they're all made to point us and to cause us to run to Him in thanksgiving and praise so that we may feed on that which truly does last and which truly does satisfy and nourish. How quickly we forget that everything that our culture sets before us, whether it be materially or ideologically, whatever our culture sets before us, it cannot suffice. It cannot suffice. Augustine, back in the, the 400s, is the one who, who said that God created us for Himself and we are restless until we rest in Him. We could change that to say that we are restless until we feast upon Him. That we feed on Him. So, where do I find rest in a restless world? Where is the food that satisfies and nourishes? Well, Jesus actually tells us. He says, as He reveals Himself, He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And immediately we should be thinking back to the encounter of, of Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. That's the totality of God's identity. And here Jesus is saying one facet of that is, I am the bread of life. I am the one that actually truly satisfies. Let me conclude with this. Friends, one of the true signs of our being born again is a deep-seated hunger for intimacy with God. We long to be in His presence. We long to read the Word and for the Spirit of God to bring it to life and to feed us so that we know that we have met and communed with God and that our hunger has been satisfied. We long for that. And it may vary in terms of the intensity from day to day. Sometimes it may feel as if we're just going through the motions. But there's a sense in which we're doing that out of obedience because we want to know Him. And so there's this deep-seated hunger for intimacy. To feed, with, to feed upon Him. And He does this because the Spirit of God in, in, in us, that gift of God, wants us to commune and to come to Jesus to commune with the Father. He gives us new passions. We've given new affections. We've given new desires. We've given a new gaze. We have been absolutely taken in by the One who has changed us. And so we want to spend time with Him. One Puritan wrote this, he said this, When friends fail, and when flesh fails, and when heart fails, yes, and all life fails, in other words, when God has brought us to the end of ourselves, Christ will not fail, but will stand by and He will strengthen you, and He will be a light to you in your darkest hours, a stay to your spirits when they are ready to sink within you. Great encouragement from uh, one of the Puritans said it was Thomas Vincent who wrote that about 450 years ago. So how will you respond to all of this? That's the question that is set before us. How will you respond? Is Jesus Christ truly enough today, tomorrow, and forever? Will you follow His call to a sacrificial life, living differently to the way of the world, to hunger and to feast upon Him today, tomorrow, and forever. And one day when we cross, when these, when these days are through and we breathe our last, we will see Him for, for who He truly is. 
you know, this morning we're going to be coming to the meal, the, the table of the Lord. And there's a sense in which this passage, as much as it's speaking upon feeding spiritually upon Jesus Christ and His Word, it's also a foreshadowing of what Jesus would institute with regards to the Lord's table. And that we get to tangibly actually partake of that which we've been speaking about in the Scriptures. And so I don't know where many of you are or where all of you are, but there may be some of you here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. And the invitation this morning is come and eat. Stop playing around with things that will not satisfy. But come and eat on Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and follow Him. Come to Him. But I'm pretty sure that there are others here that perhaps you've, you've wandered from the way. You've tried to seek satisfaction and nourishment in the things that the world has to offer. Perhaps you've just allowed yourself to be taken off of the narrow path. And this morning, Jesus once again says, Come back. Come back, my brother. Come back, my sister. Come back. And feed upon me. I alone can truly satisfy. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Lord, as we just take a few moments of silence, Lord, we pray that You would work in our hearts by Your Spirit. Lord, point out those areas of our lives where perhaps we have drifted, where we've wandered away. And Lord, we pray this morning that You would cause us just to repent and to turn from that and desire to follow You and to feed upon You. Father, we do pray that each and every one of us who is present here this morning would be able to say, as Peter said, to whom can we go for you alone and the words of eternal life? Father, may that be our profession, today and tomorrow, until we see you in glory one day. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together our hymn, My Jesus.
thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And His mercy endures forever. Our, our hymn is uh, Psalm 71a, and you have the wrong one in your boat, and so you might get in the uh, Psalter. Sing what's printed. Sing what's printed. All right.
and every week we get to come and we get to see this display before us. So that is what we have before us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the mercy that you have lavished upon us. We thank you for your grace, for the forgiveness of sins, for for our knowing that, that we are in, in, in prosperity and health and in difficulty, that we are in your hands and in control of all things, and that you love us and care for us, have forgiven us. We thank you for this. We thank you for the, the, the body. Uh, we thank you for the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The body and blood of our Lord strengthen and preserve you steadfast in the true faith until life life everlasting in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.